Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Content Director here at Word on Fire. Today we're sharing with you a talk Bishop Barron recently gave at the 2021 Los Angeles Religious Education Congress. Like many conferences, this conference was turned virtual because of the coronavirus. So Bishop Barron pre-recorded a talk, which he delivered on video, titled Catholics, Media Mobs, and the Culture of Contempt. A lot of his talk focuses on this swell of negative and nasty behavior that we're seeing, not just among non-Catholics on social media, but even and especially among many Catholics. Bishop Barron talks about how we can address this problem and how we Catholics personally can use social media and these internet tools more virtuously. Before we get to the talk, though, I wanted to mention a couple things. First, we just released yet another great new book titled The Pope Benedict XVI Reader. It actually came out on April 16th, which was Pope Benedict's birthday, so a great celebration of this incredible theologian. This reader was created for people who have long admired Pope Benedict and have wanted to read more of his writings, but maybe don't really know where to start. What we've done is we've pulled the best of the best sections from his many books. I think Pope Benedict has written somewhere around 70 to 80 books. It's a huge corpus and intimidating for the beginning reader, but we've taken the best of the best passages on theology, Christ, the church, Mary, the saints, prayer, almost every theological topic you can imagine, and we've pulled them into one simple volume. So you get his best writings, his best magisterial teachings, his best reflections on prayer, his best speeches and homilies, all together in one place. You can learn more and order your copy of this beautiful book at wordonfire.org slash benedict, wordonfire.org slash benedict. Whether you've been reading his writing for years or you're new and you haven't read a single word of Pope Benedict, this would be a great place to start. Again, the Pope Benedict Sixteenth Reader, and you can find it at wordonfire.org slash benedict. Second, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but we're asking for your help to bring to completion this Word on Fire Bible series. As you know, we released Volume 1, which covered the Gospels last year, and there was an amazing, overwhelming response. We sold out of all of our copies in just a handful of days. In fact, I think now we're up to 200,000 copies sold. It's become the best-selling Catholic study Bible of our generation. But we didn't want to stop with just this first volume. We want to keep the series going. We're planning to release Volume 2 early next year in 2022, which will contain the rest of the New Testament. And then we want to release five volumes after that, taking us all the way through the Old Testament. But as you can imagine, a project of this scope and magnitude is expensive. We're using the highest quality people, the highest quality materials. Everything is top-notch, which means everything is costly to produce. And we need your help to make it happen. With a gift of $85 or more, you can help ensure the completion of this endeavor and claim your copy of Volume 2. You'll be one of the first people to receive it once it rolls off the presses. So visit wordonfire.org slash bibleproject. That's the website, wordonfire.org slash bibleproject. On that webpage, you'll get a special sneak preview of Volume 2 so you can see what it looks like and learn how you can support this great project. Again, wordonfire.org slash bibleproject. Okay, with that, I will turn it over to Bishop Barron, and you can listen to his talk titled Catholics, Media Mobs, and the Culture of Contempt. Enjoy. 
I'm giving a talk on a topic suggested to me by the organizers of the Congress. And I think as a follow-up to a, a short presentation I gave last summer, they asked me to speak on the culture of contempt, especially as it obtains in Catholic social media. So what I'm going to do in this brief uh, presentation is just three things. First of all, what is this culture of contempt? Secondly, where does it come from? And thirdly, what do we do about it? So that's my talk. First of all, what is it? Well, I think probably everybody listening to me right now has experience on the social media, most of you on Catholic social media. So you've experienced it for sure. I'm talking about this toxic, poisonous, fetid quality to much of the social media dialogue. And I'm sorry to say it, but to a lot of Catholic social media in particular. You know, I began working with YouTube, oh, about 13 years ago now, I think 2007. And in those days, the new atheist movement was all, you know, in vogue. And so as I began talking about God, a lot of the atheists and agnostics and critics of religion came on my websites and my com boxes. And I had, a, you know, a lot of spirited exchanges with these folks. And sometimes they would engage in this kind of mob behavior. You know, they'd send a bunch of their followers to one of my sites to fill them with negative comments. And so I knew about that. I mean, I had some experience with it. But I got to tell you, I say it, I guess, to our shame. If I compare my dealing with those kind of difficult, obnoxious atheists from 13 years ago and dealing with my fellow Catholics on social media, I take the atheists. I mean, the Catholics are just, are just meaner, to be honest with you. And, you know, this goes across the ideological spectrum. Both left and right are guilty of it. I'll give you one example from my experience. First, from the left. This was a couple years ago at the national uh, USCCB meeting. So I was chair of the Bishop's uh, Committee on Evangelization. They asked me to speak on the whole phenomenon of the nuns, you know, the unaffiliated. So I gave a talk on the statistics and the reasons why and so on. At the close of the talk, I offered several reasons for hope. And I went through a number of them. And I finally came to the, what I called the phenomenon of Jordan Peterson. Now, he's been sick about the last year or so, a bit off the public scene, but certainly at that time, I mean, he was one of the most influential um, cultural figures in the world. And uh, at the time, he was doing a lot of talks on the Bible. Good talks, serious talks. He was attracting tens of thousands to his personal appearances, attracting millions on social media. A serious man talking in a serious way about the Bible. So I said to the bishops, I don't know if even you know who this man is, but I said, and I'm not endorsing everything he's ever said, but I think this is a, is a sign of hope, that, that this man is attracting so much attention talking about the Bible. Well, maybe you know that Peterson sort of began his career as a critic of his own Canadian government imposing the use of pronouns with the whole transgender business. And my point is not to get into that, but just to show that's a reason why he was controversial. Well, I make this, this simple observation that it's a sign of hope that he's giving these very popular talks on the Bible. Well, the reaction on social media was just completely over the top. I mean, I was called alt-right. I was called a Nazi. I was called a fascist. I was a fellow traveler with this right-wing uh, fanatic. 
Someone even said, I was basing my apologetics on the alt-right work of Jordan Peterson. I mean, it's not even clear to me that Peterson believes in God, and yet I was basing my apologetics on him. My point is, it was just a weirdly exaggerated reaction. And not just people disagreeing with me, but people like personally attacking me over this. Well, that's the Catholic left. Catholic right? <laughs> not much better. I'll give you one example. Last summer, in the wake of all the controversy about the statues, people tearing down statues of Junipero Serra and other people, and so a lot of voices were raised in social media about, you know, what are the bishops doing about it? Why aren't the bishops doing more? And I just made a simple observation in an article that bishops had indeed spoken out. We had played our role as teachers, but that according to Vatican II, as the bishops teach and sanctify, it's the task of the laity now to sanctify the world because the secular order is their proper sphere. I wrote an article that wasn't polemical, it wasn't ad hominem, it was attacking nobody. It was simply making this observation about the Second Vatican Council. Well, <laughs> the reaction on social media, I was weak, spineless, gutless, a traitor, a heretic. And mind you, those are only the mildest and non-obscene comments that were made. In fact, I had members of my team that spent, I think it was two full days, simply removing from our social media sites the most vile and hateful and obscene remarks. <laughs> and don't take my word for it. I mean, look up the article if you want. It's still up there. A, a, a bishop laying out the teaching of Vatican II and applying it to the present situation met with that kind of response. I mean, these were coming from my brother and sister Catholics, <laughs> not, from, not from, you know, hateful enemies of the church. These were coming from my own brothers and sisters. Many now who deal with social media talk about the combat-like experience. What I mean here is it's almost like a PTSD situation. When you go into com boxes or on Twitter and you read what people are saying about you, they witness to it being like crawling off of a terrible battlefield, the sheer anxiety, self-loathing that it, that it inculcates. A good example here, he's been very upfront about it, is, uh, is Dave Rubin. You know, Dave began, he's a, a, he was a comedian and sort of a culture commentator, began as a strong liberal and then underwent a conversion to a kind of a libertarian position today, I would say. Well, when he did this, how the left came after him with such hatred and vitriol that he got physically sick. Read his most recent book. Talks about his, his hair falling out. His, he had went to his doctor with physical symptoms. And the doctor said, have you been under a lot of stress recently? Yes, and the PTSD caused by this involvement with social media. So that's, the, that's my first observation. What is this thing? We all know that it's there. There's something kind of uniquely awful about the way we're treating each other on social media, especially, I would say, we Catholics. Okay, so second point. Where's all this come from? What's making this possible? Let me just make a few simple observations. I think, first of all, from the impersonality of the internet and the ease with which we can communicate through the internet. 
Here's what I mean. Go back, oh gosh, even 30, 40 years. If you read an article in a newspaper or magazine that really got you mad, and you wanted to say something about it publicly, well, you'd have to sit down and you'd have to type out a letter. You'd have to find an envelope and a stamp and address it, send it to the editor of the magazine. The editor would open it up. He'd have maybe a lot of letters. He'd read yours. Likely, if you were saying all kinds of over-the-top things, he'd say, well, that's crazy, and throw it away. Even if you got through this whole gamut of, um, of requirements and your letter was published, it might appear in the paper. People look at it and say, oh, that guy's crazy, and they throw the paper away. Now, none of that is standing between <laughs> your opinion and utter publicity. Anyone now can sit in his basement, type out a few words, no filter, no editor, no one standing in the way, and just like that, 24-7, 365 days a year, all over the world, your comment appears. The ease of communication, and then furthermore, the impersonality of it. Not even having to claim your own name and identity. You just fire off some crazy remark or some really wicked remark under a fake name or a, or a, a moniker of some kind. This has contributed, I think, to the intensity and the vitriol of these attacks. Uh, I've, I've read about what they call the, the fake backbone phenomenon. People say, you know, I am mad about this. I'm going to stand up to that person. So you feel like really brave. You've done something brave and strong, but you really haven't. You haven't confronted the person. You haven't put your name out there. You haven't opened yourself to, to criticism. You've just, in this very anonymous way, dashed off a remark. That's no backbone. That's fake backbone. I came across this just recently in a, um, a new uh, book on Lincoln I'm reading. We all know that Abe Lincoln was a famous uh, storyteller, right? So when he was a young man running for political office in Illinois, he got up, they say, at one point, and he was also quite a good mimic. I didn't, I didn't realize that, but a very good mimic. And he got up, and in the presence of his opponent, he began mocking him, mimicking his voice and, and making him seem foolish. And the crowd really got into it because Lincoln was such a good storyteller. Big reaction. He thought, boy, I really knocked this one out of the park. But then, according to the story, Lincoln looked over and saw his opponent weeping. And it so broke his heart that on the spot, Abraham Lincoln decided, I'll never do that again. So he was, you know, a politically active person, obviously, and made strong public arguments. But he said he would never engage in that kind of public mockery again. I'll, I'll get to some of this later, but maybe think about that when you're tempted to fire off one of these really vile remarks, think of the person receiving it weeping. So that's one reason, the impersonality of the, of the internet. Here's a second reason, I think, behind so much of the, um, of the cruelty. Uh, we are being manipulated. Now, to back this up, and, and no one paid me to say this, but go on Netflix and get the movie called The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you've heard about that. It's a really interesting documentary, and it interviews a number of key players at like Google and Facebook and Instagram, the people that were involved in the, in the formation of these means of communication, all talking about the shadow side of these things, all talking about the way that these um, technologies 
manipulate us in very dark and negative ways. Here's a, a first observation. Um, the way these machines were designed, think especially of the, of the smartphones that we all carry around with their notifications and the email and the dings, the pings when something comes in, a message comes in. All of these were designed to be addictive. They, they trigger a sort of chemical reaction in the brain. Hey, someone's responding to me. Oh, I got an email. Oh, someone liked what I put up there. And the machines themselves are designed to draw us very addictively into this world. Furthermore, we all know about uh, these, uh, these algorithms, so-called. These sort of impersonal um, uh, formulas by which we are manipulated to watch things in certain areas. So let's say you, you go on a website and then the algorithms begin kicking in. Oh, he likes that sort of thing. Send him five more. And I'd be looking around those. Oh, he, boy, he really likes those. Send him 10 more of those. Or boy, he follows that, that person, listen to that political point of view. Send him five more like that. Oh, he actually watched two or three more. Send him 10 more of those. What's the result of this manipulation, by the way, which is for the sake of money, is to get our eyes on the screen so that, that advertising money flows into the right places. But what's it doing to us? It's locking all of us into these various silos. Here's the little area now that I am interested in, and all I start watching and all I start reading are people along these lines. Now, politically, I just start watching nothing but the liberal point of view or the conservative point of view or whatever point of view. But what's behind a lot of it is this impersonal manipulation, which is, is dividing us into camps. Another point they make is this. The algorithms like it when we fight. <laughs> because you start fighting with somebody. That's interesting. Other people begin watching. This is the, the uh, car wreck on the side of the road phenomenon, right? There might be just a little fender bender off the side of the road, but we all got to stop and stare at it. So two people are fighting. Ah, that's interesting. Let me pay attention to that. Oh, algorithms are kicking in. Oh, send them more things like that where people are fighting about the same issue. Oh, that's really interesting. Now I'm spending hours of my day watching these ridiculous ideological fights on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever. Am I realizing, again, watch this film for the details. Am I realizing how manipulated I am and how all of us are being drawn into conflict precisely by these impersonal forces. Here's a third observation. Gosh, I think it was actually many years ago at the Congress, I spoke on uh, René Girard, uh, the great French-American philosopher, died just about 10 years ago now. But maybe most of you know the, the contours of Girard's famous theory of scapegoating, victimization. Basic idea is that when conflicts arise in a given society, this could be a coffee clash, it could be a nation state, when conflicts arise, what we do by a basic instinct is we look for scapegoats. There's somebody behind this, someone's to blame. That guy, that woman, that group. And then all of us come together forming Girard would say, a kind of mob, and again, from the most local to the most geopolitical level, forming a kind of mob that finds an ersat sense of unity and peace precisely in the act of commonly blaming the scapegoat. Look at the woman caught in adultery story in John chapter 8 for the details. Girard loved that story, by the way. 
Do we see this phenomenon <laughs> on the internet? You bet. I tell people, if you want to see the truth of Girard's theory, I used to say, I mean, look to the dynamics of politics in the 20th century. Fine, but I say look to the dynamics of the internet, the social media space. Boy, it's no accident that these groups of, of critics on Twitter are often called Twitter mobs. What's a mob like? It's irrational, it's scapegoating, and it's violent and dangerous. Sound familiar? That's the Girardian theory in a nutshell. And you see it acted out beautifully in these Twitter mobs today. Some poor person says something that, that someone finds inadequate or offensive or problematic. And what happens is like that, because of social media, a mob can form, a scapegoating mob. Together, let's blame that person, that group. Girard named this, by the way, as one of the most fundamental forms of sin. And he's dead right about that. And I think this has influenced the dynamics of, of social media to a large degree. You know, here's something else, um, and again, I say it to our shame, but the, the sex abuse scandals, now we've been you know, reeling from these for the past several decades, have certainly contributed to the intensity and, and violence and vituperation that you can find in social media. There's such suspicion, and again, to a degree, I understand it, a suspicion of the institutional church, a suspicion of, of priests, a suspicion of those in authority, and that's exacerbated a lot of these tensions, leading to hair-trigger reactions, et cetera. And just a, a last reason for why this is happening, where it's coming from, is, you know, frankly, the presence of some pretty uh, nasty people on social media, and especially in, in Catholic social media. People that are um, drawing their power from the stirring up of, uh, of hatred. Not really uh, educating or illuminating, but drawing their power from um, conflict, stirring up uh, trouble, stirring up verbal violence. Um, again, the car wreck phenomenon. What makes a lot of these websites attractive is precisely that quality. Oh, oh, someone's fighting. Oh, someone's being blamed. Oh, someone's being attacked. That's interesting. Uh, this has not helped, obviously, and this has contributed to a lot of the situation. Okay, so what is it? Where does it come from? Lastly, and I want to spend the most time with this, what do we do about it? What's the way forward now for all of us who are, you know, users of social media, but people that also love the Catholic Church, we want to get involved in, in community, we want to get involved in evangelization, we want to get involved in, in teaching, we want to use the social media as best we can, but avoid these difficulties. Let me make just a couple of practical suggestions. First, I'd recommend everybody fasting from social media from time to time. Now, there were people, by the way, in that film I, I referenced, The Social Dilemma, founders of these, of these uh, uh, technological tools who recommended just permanently get off of them, like just, just quit. I, I, I'll take that seriously. I'm not going to go that far. But I am going to recommend fasting from social media from time to time using the social media a lot less than we do. 
Have you paid attention? I, I, I'll confess to you, the first time I, I became aware of this, it kind of shocked me. You know, your iPhone will tell you how much time you've spent on, on the social media in the course of a day. The first time I saw that, I thought, oh, no, 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 there's been a mistake. There's no way I was on the phone for that long. And then it, it sinks in, no, I don't think the machine is lying. Without even knowing it, I was drawn into so many of these, of these uh, sites. Stop spending so much time on that stupid phone. Use it for good, and there's plenty of good in it. I, I got a whole social media ministry. But let's watch the time that we use on it. Um, a lot of researchers, you know, have been showing, read to Gene Twenge on this, the tight correlation between screen time and depression. Man, I, I, I can, I think, feel it in my own life that when, when you're spending a lot of time on the screen, it does something to your brain chemistry or something. You, you start just feeling more lethargic or down, you know? Watch it. And then, as I've been saying, the more we're on these things, gosh, the more we're drawn into these endless controversies, the more we end up in arguments and disputes, it's not good for us. As I've said, you know, I'm not completely negative on comboxes. I think good things have happened on comboxes. I know that from my ministry. You do a video and someone comes on, even negatively, but you're able to engage and make some progress, and yeah, comboxes are good. But let's be honest, they're often pretty awful places. And I think the, the less time we spend on those, the better. Here's a line I came across I love. What has no one ever said on his deathbed? Gosh, if only I'd spent more time arguing with strangers on the internet. <laughs> no one ever says that on his deathbed. And so why are we spending, look at your phone today, why are we spending hours and hours doing precisely that? So ignore it to a degree, to a degree. Hey, you know, with, um, with Lent coming up, um, that's a challenge. If you want to get really, really serious, maybe, maybe fast completely from these things, but, but fast maybe just to a degree. Say, I'm not going to go beyond you know, one hour of use per day. Try something like this during Lent. Here's a second uh, recommendation of what we do. Keep in mind the distinction between quarreling and arguing. The distinction between quarreling and arguing. Here's a citation from uh, G.K. Chesterton's autobiography. This is where I got this distinction. This is G.K. speaking. My brother, Cecil Edward Chesterton, was born when I was about five years old and, after a brief pause, began to argue. He continued to argue to the end. I'm glad to think that through all those years, we never stopped arguing and we never once quarreled. That's the distinction. What's to quarrel? To quarrel is to fall into animosity, mutual dislike, ad hominem attack, feelings of aggression, self-loathing. Those are the marks of a quarrel. What's it mean to argue? And, and you know, if you've been following my work, you know I've been on this for, for several years. To recover the importance of, of argument. To argue is to observe carefully, to propose hypotheses, to think clearly and logically, to draw conclusions reasonably, 
to admit when you don't know something, to accept criticism gracefully. Good. That's what it means to argue. I'm for argument. Put that on my tombstone if you want. That guy stood for argument. I hate quarreling. The internet is filled with quarreling and almost no arguing. We've forgotten the graceful art of engaging in just this kind of disputation with someone with whom we disagree. Listen again. Observe carefully. Propose hypotheses. Think clearly and logically. Draw conclusions reasonably. Admit when you don't know something. Accept criticism gracefully. If you're into that, off you go. Use the internet all you want. Go into every con box you want if that's what you're doing. If you're quarreling, forget it. Forget it. Cut it out. Cut it out. Quarreling's getting us nowhere. Arguing will get us to a very good place. I've long agreed with the great Methodist theologian Stanley Hauerwas, who said, the great need of our time is to learn again how to have an argument about religion in public. Man, it's a good line, isn't it? To learn again how to have an argument about religion in public. Somewhere in between violence and bland toleration. There's the space of argument. Thomas Aquinas lived in that space, by the way. Recovering it is really important, I think, to moving forward. Here's a third recommendation. We might recover the moral significance of calumny. We might recover the moral significance of calumny. Now, I know that's a word that seems maybe a bit quaint, calumny, but it actually names something, I think, of real importance in our internet age. Here's the um, Catechism of the Catholic Church on calumny. Mind you, in the context of its presentation on the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against one's neighbor. Maybe not the commandment that springs right to mind, but I think today, commandment number eight is a really important one. Here's the key citation from the Catechism. When it is uttered publicly, a proposition contrary to truth takes on a particular seriousness. Again, when uttered publicly, a proposition contrary to truth takes on a particular seriousness. You go on the internet, remember 24-7, 365, all over the world. You're saying something that you know or suspect to be false about someone. You're propagating a, a, a calumny already committed. You're destroying someone's reputation, bearing false witness against your neighbor in a very serious way. Here's a, a bit of a definition of calumny from the Catechism. Calumny has to do with propositions contrary to the truth that are detrimental to the reputation of others and give occasion to false judgments in their regard. Hmm. Maybe put that on a little piece of paper next to your computer screen. Again, it has to do with propositions contrary to the truth that are detrimental to the reputation of others and give occasion to false judgments in their regard. Does that sound familiar? I mean, I think we're all in the social media space guilty of this from time to time. More from the Catechism. Calumny destroys the reputation and honor of one's neighbor and thus offends against both justice 
and charity. Think about that, everybody. When you're tempted to trade in this kind of, you know, mean-spirited exchange, when you're tempted to, to get involved in a Twitter mob, to jump onto this train of calumny, keep these offenses in mind. You're, you're writing something that you know is false or at least misleading or superficial or one-sided. You're not just playing a game here. This is something of great moral uh, danger. I love this from uh, Pope Francis. Boy, is he good on this, isn't he? He, he really is clued into the dangers of, of calumny. He spoke in one of his morning mass homilies of, quote, the dark joy of gossiping. It's good, isn't it? There is a kind of joy. That's why we do it. That's why we join Girardian scapegoating mobs or Twitter mobs. But it's a dark joy. It's a dysfunctional joy. It'll eventually turn on us and turn into something much more like depression. I like this from Kierkegaard, the great philosopher. He said, when you label me, you negate me. It's true, isn't it? You jump on the internet now and you start, you join a Twitter mob and, and you're just labeling someone because they said one thing that was slightly off what you think is right. When you label me, you negate me as a person. Reread that section of the Catechism. Take a good look at this treatment of the Eighth Commandment about bearing false witness. And I think, friends, that could be a good way forward. Here's a fourth recommendation, and this is another one you could put up, I think, next to your computer screen. Go to uh, Paul to the Galatians, chapter 5. Paul to the Galatians, chapter 5. And there you see his famous discussion of the fruits of the Holy Spirit and what he calls the works of the flesh. What are the fruits of the Holy Spirit? They are the signs that the Holy Spirit is present and operative in you or somebody else. What are they? Put these next to your computer screen. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay, got them? You go on the um, internet. You go to, let's say, a Catholic website. Do you see someone who's exhibiting there these qualities? Can you watch that person say, yeah, I'm sensing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control? Good. Good chance the Holy Spirit is operative in that person. How will you know them? By their fruits you shall know them. This isn't guesswork. It's not, it's not uh, rocket science, actually. You can see the fruits of the Holy Spirit in these qualities. Now, in that same fifth chapter of Galatians, Paul lays out what he calls the works of the flesh. That's to say those things inimical to the Spirit, or better, those things indicative of darker spirits at work. What are they? Enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions and factions. Let me name them again. Enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, and factions. Those are the marks of the dark spirit. Those are the works of the flesh. Now, you go on the internet, you go on especially Catholic internet, and you tell me if you see these qualities in somebody. I'd recommend staying away from that person. 
I would suggest strongly to you, you're dealing with something there of the darker spirit. Put these next to your computer screen. Galatians 5, put the, the uh, fruits of the spirit and the works of the flesh. It'll help you make a decision about what you should be watching. Mind you too, this is the last point under this uh, heading. Uh, the devil has two great names in the New Testament, right? He's called Hodiabolos, which means the scatterer, and he's called Hosatanas, which means the accuser. Two great moves of the dark spirit. The dark spirit divides and accuses. Read Girard, by the way, under that rubric. If you're looking at a website that's doing a lot of dividing and accusing, I think you know what spirit's behind it. Here's a fifth and final recommendation as a way forward. Prayer should precede and accompany all of your use of the internet. Prayer should precede and accompany all of your use of the internet. Now, I know when you speak of prayer, it can seem, oh, kind of, you know, pious and isn't that nice? I don't mean this as a pious remark. I mean this is the most important remark I've made, which is why I put it at the very end of this talk. Pray as you sit down to the keyboard. Pray before you go on the internet. Unless and until your use of social media is connected to God and the things of God, you will probably end up misusing it. I'd recommend to you what my thesis director in Paris many years ago, when I was doing my doctoral work, recommended to me. He said, find an icon of the Lord and put it right next to your computer. This was years ago, and uh, I was surprised but delighted by that recommendation. I followed it ever since. Put an icon of the Lord or, or one of the great saints or the Blessed Mother next to your computer screen. And when you sit down to do your work on the internet or your engagement, pray in a very conscious way. To forge a connection to heaven is to do what, everybody? It's to move into the world of love, because love is what God is. What's love? To will the good of the other. It's Thomas Aquinas' definition. To love is to will the good of the other. Okay, okay, you're on the internet, you're watching websites, you're in comboxes, you're responding. If you're willing the good of the other, off you go. What did Augustine say? Love and do whatever you want. Terrific, terrific. You're in the space of love. You're willing the good of the other. Fine, then enter into these comm boxes, enter into arguments, because you won't be quarreling, by the way, you'll be arguing. You won't be attacking in a mob spirit. You'll be trying to engage out of a sense of charity and love for the truth. Good, love and do whatever you want. So when you sit down at the computer with the icon in front of you, say a prayer that links you to God and the things of God before you get involved in this space. Before you put fingers to keyboard to make a statement, and I know, believe me, I'm preaching to myself here, everybody, because I know the, the impulse. Someone said something mean, and I'm going to say something mean back, right? Before you, you, fingers to keyboard, ask the simple question, am I doing this out of love? Am I willing the good of the other? If not, cut it out. Don't do it. Don't make the statement. All right, just for conclusion. Uh, I'm known, I guess, as one of the you know, most enthusiastic users of social media in the Catholic space. 
I still believe strongly in its evangelical efficacy. We'd have to do another talk on that, the positive side. I've long encouraged bishops and priests to get involved in social media because it's of enormous evangelical potential. To use these tools not just for information sharing, but for the proclamation of the gospel, especially to those who would never think of darkening the doors of our institutions, but we can move into their space using this great tool. And so I am totally in favor of that. Please don't construe anything I've said today as a you know, one-sided dismissal of social media. No, no, I believe in it. But I also realize how dysfunctional this world can become. So use it, but use it with caution. Use it, but discern the spirits as you do. Use it, but use it always with love. Love, and then do what you will. God bless you all. Well, we hope you enjoyed that talk from Bishop Barron titled Catholics, Media Mobs, and the Culture of Contempt. Just to remind you about the couple items I mentioned before the talk, first, pick up your copy of this beautiful new anthology we've created titled The Pope Benedict XVI Reader. It contains the best of the best excerpts from Pope Benedict's encyclicals and books and spiritual writings. You can find it all in one place in this great new book. Visit wordonfire.org benedict to order your copy today. Also, we need your help to bring to completion this great Word on Fire Bible series. It's one of the most tremendous and exciting projects of our generation. We're representing the Bible to many people who have dismissed it as boring and irrelevant by offering profound commentary, beautiful artwork, gorgeous design, but we need your help to bring all of these volumes to reality. Right now, we've completed one volume. We're planning on seven. So to bring these next six to print, we need your help. Visit the website wordonfire.org slash Bible project. You'll get a first look at volume two, which is in the pipeline, getting close to coming out, and learn how you can support this project and get one of the very first copies of volume two when it's ready. Again, the website's wordonfire.org slash Bible project. Well, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show. Thank you.